The sun is setting on another beautiful day in Iquique. It's time to kick back with a caipirinha and some grilled octopus. I'm John Golden. And I'm Sarah Rovay. And you're listening to Sundowners, conversations about architecture, place, and global travel. Happy birthday! Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's the big 3 O. I think if you told me last year that I'd celebrate my next birthday on the beach in Iquique, Chile, I, I don't think I would have believed you. <laughs> yeah, I think that's nice though, right? I mean, it's good to remember that you can never know what next year, or really even the next day, will bring. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess though I, I am sort of hoping that next year I'll, I'll turn 31 you know, in New Mexico with friends and family. Uh, maybe we can save the next big adventure for 32, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it, it really is remarkable, you know, particularly just as we near the end of this portion of the trip, you know, with us traveling together, just to think about how crazy it's all been, you know, how just unexpected and unpredictable and, I mean, uh, truly amazing. So uh, thanks again for, for winning the whole fellowship thing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my pleasure. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that we could be somewhere at least a little relaxing for your birthday, even if the Kiki is a bit rough around the edges as beach towns go. No, I mean, it was, it's a very good birthday. And I, I think we, we learned some lessons from your birthday in Nagasaki, Japan, namely <laughs> avoid elaborate kaiseki meals featuring whale, <laughs> which we successfully did avoid here in Iquique. Uh, instead, we opted for fruity cocktails and grilled octopus at a trendy Greek resto bar down by the beach. And after lunch, we went to the mega market and bought a cheap little parasol and some towels and went to the beach, along with a decent percentage of the rest of Iquique. <laughs> yeah. Also, briefly, the mega mart, which was named Jumbo Cinco Sud, was basically a sort of super Walmart equivalent. So it really had everything, including a whole section devoted to peanut butter. Ooh. If you've been following this podcast, you know what an epic struggle it has been to find peanut butter here. So of course I grabbed a couple of jars of made in America crunchy style for our upcoming road trip. It was a birthday miracle. Um, speaking of which, actually, one thing we've sort of picked up on on this trip is I've actually been using the grocery store layout as sort of a cultural lens. You know, in the States, we're, we're so used to seeing, for example, you know, peanut butter next to jelly, and then probably there's an end cap on that aisle with some plain sandwich bread. And this all, you know, makes perfect sense to us. I don't think a second thought about it. Um, but, you know, of course, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches aren't a thing at all here in Chile, so the peanut butter, if there is any, is never anywhere near the preserved fruit. Instead, it's usually been by the very well-stocked and varied collection of dose de leche, which is, here is called manar, or manjar, I don't, I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, anyway, manjar, that is a staple <laughs> of the Chilean diet. Um, and, you know, in Japan, you often see, you know, dried seaweed, next to the miso paste, next to the dried bonito flakes or tuna fish. Um, and, you know, that's clearly so people could pick up the fixins for dashi, which is the integral sort of uh, stock in Japanese cuisine. And so I'll sort of be interested to see, you know, when we get back to the American supermarkets, if we see from kind of fresh perspectives, you know, what sort of cultural elements are baked into, you know, where we shop every day. For sure, yeah, that'll be really interesting. 
And listeners also might correctly deduce from the fact that we have time to make observations about the cultural significance of grocery store peanut butter locations that our time here in Akiki has been pretty chill. Yeah, that's some, that's some heavy-hitting news, though, peanut <laughs> butter. But yeah, so anyway, no, you're right. And this this will be kind of a, a shorter podcast. There's there's just been a lot less to do and see here than on Chiloé, for example. But you know, it has been nice to actually establish a routine again after our more sort of out-and-about times in southern Chile. And I feel like that's in large part been possible thanks to the fact that we're, again, in sort of a pretty comfortable and livable loft apartment in downtown Iquique. Where we've basically been waking up with the sun each morning. Or with the very vocal downtown rooster, who often begins crowing well in advance <laughs> of sunrise. And can I just say, I'm so excited for some quiet, peaceful sleep in New Mexico. Having said that, I'm sure the coyotes will be at their most vocal when we get back, but uh, still, I think the chances are higher for a good night's rest in New Mexico than they've been basically at any place in Chile. Right. Well, anyway, after we get up, we usually take a few hours to write and work, and then we do our daily yoga practice. And we've even taken advantage of the rooftop pool here at the top of our apartment building. Yeah, so after our exercise, we usually just have a light lunch and then just kind of tool around to Kike. I mean, usually there's a walk to a historic building or, you know, the grocery store or just some other little errand, like buying new sunblock, which is necessary quite frequently, as it is very sunny here. Yes. And we've also gone on some personal history-related missions for the mother of one of my close graduate school friends. She was born in Iquique and her mother grew up here. Yeah, we were actually able to track down and take a picture of the house where her mother grew up. So, I mean, having that kind of personal connection has made our time here feel a bit more meaningful. It's also just been a relief that while there are certainly historic sites to see and a few small museums, Kike's offerings are somewhat limited. I mean, I've actually really enjoyed the opportunity to see the same things multiple times and really get to know the historic district where we're staying. Yeah, actually, one thing we've been talking about on this trip is how Maybe for future trips down the road, years from now, I think we have, we'll have more of an appreciation for traveling to kind of slightly more boring places right. to actually relax. I mean, you never travel to New York to relax, um, but, you know, it's, it's easier to relax in, in Iquique. And anyway, also, even though this is a, you know, a big industrial port town like Valparaiso, uh, where we started our stay in Chile, the architecture and the natural landscape are completely different. Yeah, if you didn't already know, it would be hard to guess that Valparaiso and Iquique are even in the same country or part of the world. Yeah, I mean, Iquique really seems like a city that exists in spite of its natural surroundings. It's right on the edge of the Atacama Desert, and it's really just nestled into this very narrow strip of flat land between towering mountains and dunes and the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, if it weren't for the nitrate mining industry, it's likely Iquique wouldn't be here at all. In the 19th century, huge deposits of naturally occurring nitrate, also called saltpeter, were discovered in what is today northern Chile. Yep, and, and there was a huge demand for this compound, which is used in both fertilizer and explosives, two very important things. And there was really no way to artificially synthesize this compound until 1909, so Chile pretty much had the market cornered. Iquique was the place that received most of the nitrate mined in the desert nearby and then shipped it out to the rest of the world. But after German chemists figured out how to manufacture nitrate, the market in Chile pretty much collapsed instantaneously. I mean, the mines very quickly closed and just yeah, became ghost towns kind of right away. It's actually kind of a miracle that Iquique has continued to survive even after the nitrate market collapsed. 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like shipping is still a pretty big part of the economy. I mean, we have a view of the port from our window, and it's kind of been fun to watch the giant container ships come and go. Um, and I guess it's also known as a pretty good surf spot. We can also see surfers outside of our window, which is fun. And it's also a convenient launch point for sort of more touristified parts of northern Chile, like San Pedro de Atacama, where we're actually headed next week. And tomorrow, we're headed out on a day trip to see some of the nearby nitrate mine ghost towns, which are now actually UNESCO World Heritage Sites. But the central historic district of Iquique itself still feels kind of transitional. Parts of it have been restored and other parts feel surprisingly run down. Yeah, I think I was expecting it to be a bit more tourist-oriented and, and redeveloped. And it's also been really interesting how the development and the parts like we're in, in this nice new apartment building, are really right in the middle of all of these uh, kind of run-down spots. Right. For some reason, the way that this historical zone is set up is um, legally different, I guess, than where we were in Valparaiso, where there mm. was no new construction. Yeah, allowed in the yeah. patrimonial area. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but here the center of action is really Bacadano Street, a site that has been on the UNESCO tentative list actually since 1998. I mean, I can only speculate why the Chilean government hasn't moved forward on this nomination, but it does seem like there just may not be the resources currently to carry out a more significant and extensive restoration, or just to meet UNESCO's requirements of architectural authenticity and integrity in the historic places that they inscribe on the World Heritage List. Uh, yeah, I don't think we, we actually would have realized how run down some of these buildings actually are if we couldn't see the back and tops of them from our balcony in our 11th story apartment. Um, I mean, the fronts on most of them actually look pretty good and sort of nice and colorful, but yeah, the backs and the roofs are, are really uniformly a mess and sort of decaying and falling apart. I mean, I think some of that is just the nature of the original historic construction though, and not a lack of preservation. The buildings on Bacadano Street were built mostly by North American and British mine owners as mansions, casinos, and restaurants. All of the ornamentation was on the facades facing into the street, and maybe some of the interiors as well. But the sides and the backs of the buildings really revealed how much these buildings are just kind of movie sets. They're really all about the outward appearance. Yeah, and I guess that's also partially because of the lack of building materials here. I mean, the Atacama Desert is literally the driest and sort of least hospitable to life place on Earth. Uh, so I would imagine there's a lot of on-site building materials. Yeah, exactly. So the buildings on Bacadano Street were actually mostly built out of imported Oregon pine, of all <laughs> That's things. That's so crazy. So unsurprisingly, given all that wood architecture, the city experienced some pretty intense fires in its early days. And so it's even more shocking to me that so much of the original building stock has survived from the 1890s and early 1900s. Yeah, and certainly parts of Bacadano Street are being used for retail or cultural attractions. You know, there are plenty of, of restaurants along the way, but there are also a lot of just empty storefronts. Uh, you just kind of have to pray that all these buildings have been retrofitted with some kind of fireproofing. Which I think, frankly, seems doubtful. I mean, I think that the continued survival of this really strange and unique district may very well hinge on them being able to establish more heritage tourism in this area. But so far, I guess I just haven't seen very much of a push in that direction. Yeah, and I mean, it's really too bad because Iquique, you know, really is an important part of Chile's mining heritage. I mean, in addition to being this major port, it was also the site of a strike 
and a subsequent worker massacre in 1907. Uh, I guess those maybe aren't the most easily touristified historical events, though. Right. Well, and I think next week, too, once we've actually gotten out into the desert to visit the mines, we will definitely have more to say about spaces of labor and protest in northern Chile. Just, I think, what all of our listeners want to hear about. (laughs) (laughs) Marxist Rants by Sarah. (laughs) Marxist Rants in the desert, no less. That's right. Anyway, overall, it, it has been nice to just have the time and space to actually, you know, just explore slowly and and process what we're seeing. And, and I really, I was impressed by the little boat tour we took of the harbor. Uh, we posted some photos on Instagram. And it was this like totally informal tour where we just put our phone numbers on a list that some guy had on the <laughs> port. Um, and, you know, he said they'd call when they had at least 11 people that had signed up. And then, you know, we'd go on this boat tour. Um, and the area kind of seemed pretty sleepy and, and not a lot of tourists, you know, rushing to the port. So... We didn't really actually have any high hopes at all that it would run, so we, we walked home, and but they called within like 20 minutes, and you know we had to rush back to the port, and there were, I think, at least 15 people on the boat ride. And it ended up being a, a nice little tour. I mean, we didn't understand most of what he said, but still we got to see, you know, the, the port up close and see the sea lions, and, um, you know, it was like over an hour, and it was only 10 bucks for the two of us. Yeah, this whole experience in Iquique has definitely given me a better sense of the pace that I want to take when I am traveling by myself in Europe in 2019. Yeah, as we have emphasized on numerous occasions here in Chile, our pace here has been a lot more manageable than Japan, where we were always going and doing and moving hotels every few nights. And we're in Iquique for almost another week before we head off on our desert road trip. So we'll leave it there for now and plan to share more insights next week. Before we go, though, it's time for Overrated Underrated... So what have you got for overrated this week, Sarah? My overrated this week is the term digital nomad, which I've become increasingly disenchanted with (laughs) because I think some people would identify us as digital nomads. Um, But for me, what's sort of problematic about this term is that it casts what is sort of essentially tourism, even if you are doing work while you're on the road, as a really normative state. And I think it glosses over the fact that tourism does have environmental and cultural costs. And just because you're like supporting a local economy by going to its coffee shops, doesn't make your actions in that place sort of unambiguously positive. Or at least not negative. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, And I think there's just a lot of privilege hidden in that term as well. I mean, there are lots of people in this world who are nomadic, not out of choice. Right. (laughs) And sort of... uh, Grouping yourself with all other nomads, you know, I I don't think it's fair to those other nomads. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So I say for my overrated, um, maybe this isn't so much a a critique of the thing, but it's just I have a new angle on it as the the end of the year lists, which are kind of popping up now and like, you know, top movies of the year and also like the gift guides and things like this. And uh, I used to, I think, really be into those or think that they were like, oh, I got to see what I missed of like this yeah. year in media or whatever. And I have just been so out of the loop on basically everything during this trip that I can't even like reading these lists. It just doesn't mean anything. I, yeah. Like I saw Black Panther. Like that was the one movie I saw this year. And I just don't know anything about any other movie. And it's kind of like <laughs> nice just to not know. Yeah. And just not even bother trying to find out. That's right. And just kind of check out. So I've, I've enjoyed not caring about end of the year lists. So what about, let's say, underrated though. What, what about you? 
Oh, well, just thinking back to your birthday lunch yesterday, I really enjoyed the grilled octopus that we had. And yeah. I would say that, you know, in Chile, we have eaten almost no land animals. Yeah, yeah. But we have been really branching out and eating very different things from the sea. And I would say that cephalopods are definitely a group that I have not really appreciated until we got here, at least outside the like fried calamari, which right. seems to be the way that most people are familiar with eating squid or octopus. So I'm I'm excited to to go home and I I don't think you can get good octopus in New Mexico, mm. but you know, next time we're on another beach vacation, I know what I'm ordering. Yeah, and we read that interesting article in the Times recently about the intelligence of cephalopods and how it's actually kind of a real outlier in the world of animal intelligences. Yeah. And they're incredibly clever. I mean, you can look up on YouTube all these videos of octopuses, octopi, I guess octopi, yeah. um, you know, using tools and unlocking jars and all this crazy stuff. Um, but they don't have any like kind of emotional or like societal structures or anything like that and they're actually very short-lived and so it's a very odd kind of they're incredibly clever but don't have many of the hallmarks of kind of anthropomorphizing things that we think about with monkeys and stuff like that so they're they're very interesting and delicious which is sort of <laughs> a nice that's, combination that's right <laughs> um all right john what's your underrated for the week oh keeping with the sea theme um, and again, this is really kind of my own personal narrative of mm -hmm. things I had, I think, previously underrated. Um, I'm going to go with waves yeah. like in, in the ocean. <laughs> this is, again, some really hard-hitting journalism here, folks. Um, but, you know, when we went to the beach on my birthday, um, you know, I don't think I'd really seriously been in the ocean for like eight years, um, mm -hmm. you know, beyond getting my feet wet occasionally. Um, and, you know, on my birthday, we really got out and like splashed around. Yeah. And I had a, a really fun time. <laughs> like, it was just cool how you swim and you try to like catch a wave and kind of body surf. And like, I know this is totally obvious to literally <laughs> everybody else in the world, but I was just like, Whoa, this is so cool. Desert um, rats, Columbus the beach. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, shout out to waves. I'm definitely, <laughs> I think, I mean, we're going to go back to the beach. I'm, I'm excited to, like, just play. It was, yeah. it was a lot of fun. Anyway, I, I think that's it for the week. Um, and next week, we'll be broadcasting from the heart of the Atacama Desert. Our theme music, as always, by Mark Barrett. Happy trails, listeners. Mm -hmm.